I'm Chris Fellingham, and this is The Archers. Like The Archers, but instead of the garden fence being left open at the end of the episode, we want to leave you excited about what social science ventures can do. If you want to leave feedback, email me at chris.fellingham at innovation.ox.ac.uk. I hope you look forward to listening. Welcome back to the Arcus podcast. I'm Joelle and today I'll be chatting with some of the entrepreneurs in the current cohort of the Arc Accelerator program. I'll give a quick overview of their venture and then we'll hear them talk about what unique flavors they bring to the way they're tackling issues from safety and well-being on film sets to youth navigating leaving care. So let's dive right in. We chat with Gianpaolo Fazzari from the Helix Center about on-track rehab. Arm impairment is the most common type of disability for stroke survivors and recovery can be challenging. This is where on-track rehab comes in to help in providing accountability and support beyond initial therapy through using data and technology. Let's hear what Gianpaolo has to say about his unique perspective on this. So I think it's that user-centered approach. Um, As I said, what we've looked at, you know, in terms of what would be competitors or, you know, approaches to solving the issues that we've seen are either like technology push, you know, or very rooted in the neurological uh, science, but not really understanding what the human perspective is of, you know, what it means for them to be recovering for three months, right? So Mm -hmm. if you're asking someone to do, I don't know, the same exercise of putting, you know, a chip from this cup to the next, for three months, definitely going to lose engagement. So you're going to, you know, people are not going to do that. So it's understanding that component uh, of what makes people tick and how to meet them where they are. Joe Deakin from the University of Manchester is co-creating an app with young people transitioning from care to independent living. Let's hear what her unique perspective is as a sociologist specialising in youth justice. One of the key issues for me is about uncovering stigmatization and marginalization, and but in a way that doesn't re-stigmatize. I mean, there's a whole kind of discussion in sociology about stigma, starting with Irving Goffman, who talked about the spoiled identity, which was so totally stigmatizing of those mm. poor people he was writing about, you know. And so one of the problems with doing any research that addresses or, you know, practical applications as well of that research that addresses stigma and marginalization is not to re-stigmatize. One other thing that I did mention it briefly, just that it's the the, the idea for the app is that it's co-produced. And I think that's really important. Um, I want the young people to be designing this as well as kind of working out how it can be used and they also need to have control of it moving forward. So I I intend to have young people who are engaged in the kind of management of it long-term, you know, Mm -hmm. so maintaining, I suppose is the word, maintaining the app kind of longer term, um, making sure that it's still relevant in the years to come. And that's gonna be their role. I mean, obviously I'm gonna have to oversee that. They can't just do that on their own, but I want it to be their app. Lawrence Barcelou is from the University of Glasgow, and we chat with him to learn more about his venture, Situate, which assesses health behaviours like stress, eating, social isolation, and more. This tool would be able to help people understand mechanisms behind their health behaviour and create strategies to help manage them. Lawrence tells us about his unique take on approaching this issue. Well, I think, you know, perhaps the most um, 
immediate sort of unique feature is the fact that it's situated um, and, that, and that it's situated and this grows out of a very robust theoretical perspective. So it's very, it's very scientifically motivated. There's a lot of theoretical and, and empirical work that supports taking a situated approach to, to assessment, training, and, and intervention. So that's a, that's a unique feature. Another unique feature is that we're integrating assessment, learning, and behavior change, and also tracking all in one device, all, all in one framework. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know of anyone else who does that. Another feature is that there's this core sort of architecture that can be applied to you know, diverse health behaviors related to both physical health, mental health, um, we've talked about applying it to racism, sectarianism, suicidal tendencies. Um, it, it can be applied to non-health related things. So an area we've talked about is using it to assess trust in technology. You could use it to assess trust in government if, if, uh, if you wanted to put it to that use. Um, so it's a, it, it has a lot of, um, it's, it, that's another one of its unique features is that it's it's a basic framework that can be taken in many different directions. Mm. Um, another thing is that on these, you know, the, it's very adaptable to each individual. E each individual would put in their own situations. You, we would probably start with a set of the mechanisms that we assess would probably come from the scientific literature, but ultimately the user or the therapist or the healthcare worker could pick or even add to whatever mechanisms they want to assess that they, that they think are important in that domain for their clients. So it's very dynamic and adaptable to specific individuals in particular niches. So for example, in this graduate training program, the idea would be we would adapt it for the, the kinds of students in that program. You know, and that, so that's a real nice feature of it is that it's, it's adaptable in this way. I think another feature is that it's scalable to the larger population and principal individuals could use it by themselves. But if we use this kind of task sharing framework that would also make it very scalable. You know, you wouldn't need someone with a with a clinical degree to or, or MD to deliver it. You know, someone with very basic training could probably deliver it effective to, effectively to a lot of people. So, mm, yeah, um, so kind of like more accessible and like equitable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed. Yeah, yeah. No, we'd really like to try and find ways of using it that sort of work against health inequalities. Liam O'Hare from Stride Consultants talks to us about how his venture is helping social programs and companies make an impact through prevention and early intervention programs in disadvantaged communities. I suppose it is our unique angle is our collective expertise and my access to that expertise. You know, there's not too many people that are out there that have done as much of this kind of work and published texts on this type of work as us and have, have learned as many things along the way that is you know mm -hmm. I'm sort of trying to stand out just with the level of expertise and experience that we have you can't learn all these things overnight or, or in a week or a month or a year you know it takes many many years to know it, it's a bit like sometimes you use the analogy like the way a mechanic knows a car mm -hmm. and after 15 years of working on different cars and how, you know, what's wrong with them, what's right with them, that's what our unique selling point is that we have that experience that maybe a lot of other people don't have. Mm. As far as I'm aware, it's a, there's not a huge pipeline between social science research and the corporate world in general. Like ARC is a fairly unique kind of a program in the first place. 
the goal here is to increase the amount of funding flowing from business and corporations into good causes, good social programs, you know, and that's my driver at the end of the day to create a new revenue. It's a tough world out there getting funding to develop these programs, implement these programs in the normal social or research council funding and I see a lot of corporates also dipping their toe in the water, trying things. There's ones out there that are developing literacy programs and there's ones that are developing skills programs for adolescents and, you know, big multinational corporations doing that. I would suggest that it would be good to draw on the research and evidence that's out there in this world before they embark on those ventures. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping to offer that service through Stride. Lisa Kelly from the University of Glasgow is the founder of Set Ready Safety, which improves the safety and well-being of new entrants and freelance crew on production sets. We chat with Lisa to find out more about her unique perspective on this topic. Yeah, I think it's my um, groundedness in relation to equality, diversity and inclusion, actually. So I've been doing carrying out this kind of research on the industry for um, a number of years. And there is lots of reports um, from academics and within the industry highlighting some of the challenges facing workers. But I really wanted to move it beyond that. So we know the issues and yes, we need those reports and we need those statistics and they need to be updated to keep it on everyone's radar. But I really wanted to move beyond that to think about what can we practically do to make change, I suppose, and have an impact. But it really is grounded in EDI principles and notions of sort of accessibility and so on. So that's why our focus is on freelance crew specifically um, and new entrants as well who need the most support. One of the things we were looking at was a hazard identification test, for example. So everyone will be familiar when you do your driving test and you do the the, the um, hazard identification, but actually thinking about how that would work on set. Part of the issue that arose with COVID is that people weren't able to get access to a set, for example, mm-hmm. um, or the yeah bubbles were created, crews were smaller and so on. So that might have raised specific challenges for new entrants um, who don't have as much experience on set. So how can you use these digital tools to allow them to get that experience and actually to do some level of training to familiarise themselves with hazards and know how to respond and so on. So that was one of the features that we've been looking at. Lucy Jenkins from the MFL Student Project tells us about how they're helping to encourage more children to study international languages at GCSEs and beyond. They're doing this by partnering with university students and local schools to form mentoring relationships. Let's hear from Lucy as to why this is a unique approach. For me, languages are something that happen in context. They are something that happen with intention and they are extremely loaded. Um, We don't recognise the power of languages in lots of different ways that we use it. And we also don't recognise that languages are relational. So they happen in dialogue with something or somebody. Um, Even the way that we look at the world happens in dialogue with something or some experience. So for me, languages are about... They're about more than what we are attributing to them at the moment. We say that young people need to be fluent, that they need to understand the grammar, that they need to have a good grasp of a range of vocabulary. And they are all really, really important things to be a good linguist. But 
I think that there is so much more to languages and that we do them a massive disservice by divorcing them from their cultural context. So French is not just a language that is spoken in France. And there is a whole history and a whole colonial context that goes along with that. And we're really blind to that. And in being blind to it, we are blind to our own history. We are blind to our own social construction. We are blind to so much. So I just think we owe it to our young people to bring to life the languages that are all around them. Um, because whether people like it or not, and regardless of bigger social movements or political phenomena, we will continue to be globally diverse. Mm. Um, and we need to find ways to make that a celebration. Um, and I just, yeah, I think we owe our young people that um, moving forward. So for me languages are, are contextualized they are intentional and we need to equip young people to to make contextualized choices about languages and to use language with intent spark consultancy supports arts organizations to thrive in a post-pandemic world we spoke to mark to see what their unique angle is in helping solve the challenges arts and cultural organizations face during this time well, if I frame it in terms of the consultancy rather than me personally, yes. because it isn't just me. I think the unique angle that we bring, that this consultancy brings to the table is a really uh, deep understanding from over a decade of doing research about what arts organisations can face in terms of developing audiences, developing relationships with audiences. Uh, it's, a, it's a perspective that is not simply about market research, but going rather deeper than that. So I think we can bring sort of rather rich qualitative data to the table, very contextualized specific data that can help individual arts organizations in a powerful way. I think that's what we bring to the table. And also a, a sort of supportive neutrality in bringing our ideas to, to help arts organizations. You know, there's a sort of academic objectivity there. At the same time, it's informed by a closeness with a lot of these arts organisations whom we've worked with over the years. Yeah, I like that you brought that up, you know, in terms of having a research angle, but also knowing the context in which these organisations like operate in. So it's not like completely detached. <laughs> and I think a lot of the, we will be working with people outside of a quite large list of organisations that we've been working with over a decade. But nevertheless, I think that that work that we've done stands us in really good stead in knowing about relationships with arts organisations for a start and also having very concrete and good working relations with quite a lot of either quite large or relatively small arts organisations. So we've got a really good perspective across different sectors, I think. So that's all for today. Hope you enjoyed hearing from the entrepreneurs. I had so much fun learning all about their ventures. So make sure to check out the profiles of these entrepreneurs and their ventures via the ARC website. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to us and we'll have everything linked in the podcast description. So see you in the next episode. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of The Arc Us. Thank you to Joelle for helping to produce this podcast. And we've got plenty more in the pipeline. So come and listen.